Hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Do Healthy, Be Healthy podcast. This is another, the second and final uh, version of the anonymous questions submitted by my summer, summer abnormal psychology class, which I'm now calling my psychopathology class. Um, and so hopefully they are listening, and to my other listeners, I hope you enjoy their very insightful questions. This is, we're almost to the end of the summer session, so... They have uh, read and seen a lot of what is to be read and seen <laughs> in the class, um, so I'm sure they have a lot of, uh, of remaining uh, fantastic questions to ask. So let's go ahead and get into it. And as a reminder, I try to answer these lives. I scanned a few of these ahead of time just to get my head straight because it's early in the morning and I'm <clears throat> a little sleepy. <laughs> uh, but uh, by and large, I don't do too much research on these questions unless I tell you I'm kind of answering with my kind of off-the-cuff knowledge. So they're not comprehensive answers, of course, um, but they are, you know, it's kind of more fun for me to do it that way. Um, and it shows that I'm kind of giving an answer based on the the coagulation of both my knowledge of the literature, my knowledge of psychopathology, uh, and my own personal experiences with patients who may have some of these issues. So that's why I do it that way. I don't want to make it so sciencey that it's it's not as accessible, <laughs> uh, and I don't want to lose the human parts of it. So that's why I do it that way. Uh, so here we go. First question: I want to focus on suicide prevention, substance use disorders, and trauma. Are there specific things that you would recommend for classes or certificates or career paths? I'm looking to become a licensed mental health counselor. Looking at the trauma certificate and substance use certificate while I'm in grad school, assuming I'm accepted next fall. Wonderful question. <clears throat> I love talking about um, effective treatments for trauma, especially. But let me take a few steps back. So uh, for someone who's going into the a mental health counselor field, so this is usually requiring a master's degree. It might be a master's degree in um, marriage and family therapy. It might be a master's degree in social work, I believe, or under that same license as licensed mental health counselor. Um, so uh, a bunch of different master's degrees. And there's different types of training that you would get in those different um, training programs. They're all going to teach you extremely excellent basic skills of how to sit in front of someone, support them, um, have them talk through their feelings and their problems and things like that. Um, they're also going to hopefully give you some training in empirically based practice. Now, that's usually something that is more prominent in things like uh, psychology degrees and doctoral degrees, but it's something that has been increasingly important and paid more attention to in master's degree training programs for folks who are going to go on to be um, uh, to be counselors primarily. Uh, and especially, you know, where, where I live here in Greenville, North Carolina, uh, master's level counselors are the, are the people who are providing the most treatment. Folks like myself are doing some treatment, but, you know, our, our jobs are mainly, you know, teaching and research and training the next generation of psychologists. Uh, we don't get as much time to see a whole ton of patients. And so the people who are doing most of that work are these wonderful master's level providers who have the privilege of training through our Eastern Area Health Education Center um, and things like that. So these folks have spent more time with patients than I do. Um, but then I have better access to the science of good treatment than they do. Uh, so it's a great collaboration because I learn more about them, about the struggles they have as boots on the ground, the realities of everyday life. Um, and they can learn from me in terms of what treatments are shown to be the best. And then we can meet in the middle and I can help them implement those with their patients. So they're giving better treatment and their patients are more happy. Um, and I'm you know distributing these empirically based um, treatments. So <clears throat> for... 
Um, trauma especially. Uh, if you're a new uh, trainee, there's something called trauma-informed care, which teaches you the basics of like what trauma is and what struggles people might have and why if they're presenting to you for with depression, for example, they may have a tougher time engaging in treatment for depression because they have this trauma history too and that that's, that's carrying uh, some of the problems and some of the reason for the problems that they're having. So that's, that's good to get training in. Everyone pretty much gets training in that. Um, I would highly recommend cognitive processing therapy. Um, there are two uh, empirically based treatments that are kind of the top two. So when compared to a control group and when compared to other treatments, they are the best. They have the most evidence uh, and they come out on top or equal to other ones. Now, if you know one of the other ones, then keep doing it. I mean, if someone if someone knows how to do another trauma treatment that is on the list of empirically based treatments but isn't on the top of the list, it works. Go for it. Have fun. But if you're a learner and you don't know one yet, I would highly recommend learning the best. Uh, and the two best ones are prolonged exposure and cognitive processing therapy. The reason I love prolonged exposure, I've done some training in that um, I've done a little bit, uh, it's more recent training, I've done a little bit of, um, of use of it, but you know, not so much because I learned it recently and again, I don't see a ton of patients and most of them have depression or some type of anxiety disorder. Um, but I would, so I do recommend that one pretty highly. Um, but cognitive processing therapy I think is a little bit easier to learn uh, and one that I would feel more comfortable you know, learning in a weekend or week-long workshop and then implementing. Now, that's for you know experienced therapists who know how to do therapy. It's just adding a tool to their toolbox, right? So highly recommend cognitive processing therapy. For the folks that were in my class, I did a whole presentation on what it is and the steps of it. It's really just, it's a, it's a, cog, it's a very cognitive, cognitive behavioral therapy that is just focused on treating trauma. Um, and the wonderful parts of it is someone writes an impact statement that talks about how the trauma influenced them, and they do that early on. And then they go through cognitive behavioral therapy to kind of process what's happened. And when I say process, I don't mean just talk about it and how it's hurt them, but talk about it and how it has influenced them and the way that they think, and then working to change the way that they think. Working to do ex like little behavioral experiments and going out into the world and seeing if... Um, if the way that they think and the amount of fear that they have, the amount of concern that they have or whatever symptoms they have, see if that's valid and true. And in testing those things, both within their head and with the exercises that they do out in the real world, um, they can start to prove to themselves that the world isn't as dangerous, that they're not as inept as they have been telling themselves that they are due to the influence of the trauma. Um, so it helps to overcome the influence of that um, terrible traumatic event. Um, and so after going through 12 weeks of, <laughs> of treatment um, with, you know, one, one hour uh, a week for 12 weeks, um, they go through all the different themes. They learn different, stra different strategies to question their thinking, their automatic thinking that's occurring due to the trauma. Um, and it helps to overcome that trauma's control over their lives. Uh, and in the end, they write an impact statement and they look back at the original one and kind of see the difference that, you know, this, this trauma happened and it hurt me, and here's how I have overcome it. Here is how I am thriving in spite of, uh, of this occurring. So I would highly recommend cognitive processing therapy. If that's not present in a graduate school that you're in or something like that, uh, there are lots of training programs around the country. I know there's one at UNC. 
Um, if you know, I'm in Greenville, North Carolina, so I'm you know plugging UNC. I know there's one at UNC, um, and and it's not hard. It's pretty widely used and widely distributed, so um, it's one that that you should be able to find. Uh, for substance use, I'd encourage to have a variety of strategies. And so, you know, you probably learn kind of an abstinence approach, um, which is pretty common in substance use treatment. Um, but know that there is good empirical support for a harm reduction or moderation strategies as well. So um, I don't as readily know <laughs> uh, how to find those, um, but those would be things to look for, for harm reduction strategies and things like that. And there are, of course, books you can read to get um, behind this. Uh, and then probably some trainings you can do. Um, in terms of certificates, those are great, but they're just evidence of your skills. So the more, most important thing is to um, get the skills. Um, and especially for folks who are master's level providers, you know, once they get in their master's degree, get their master's degree, they're ready to get licensed and then they're ready to practice. But it's a lifelong learning process. It, it's the same for me. Like I said, I just did a workshop in prolonged exposure to shore up my ability to treat trauma um, a year or two ago. So it's a lifelong learning process. You're always looking for new tools to put in your toolbox because uh, every patient requires a slightly different approach. Uh, and sometimes that approach is more interpersonal and, and, and you're just kind of feeling it and using your clinical judgment. And sometimes those different approaches are using different uh, scientifically based tools. So um, that would be my recommendation for this person. It's a great question. Uh, and I hope that anyone else who wants to pursue um, training to be uh, a mental health service provider uh, keeps these things in mind that they need to have that balance between, you know, really good interpersonal skills and using clinical judgment and really being supportive of your patient and knowing how to do that. Um, and then also being able to implement these science-based approaches to make sure that the work you're doing with your patient is going to be effective and long-lasting. Wonderful question. Uh, next question. Is mental health actually more prevalent and treated in Western societies, or do we just have better technology? Um, it's For most problems, uh, and all the ones that are different are slipping my mind at the moment. I know eating disorders are more prevalent in Western countries, especially... Um, uh, among white people. Um, but then we also do see in countries that are less exposed to Western culture, as they are more exposed to Western culture, the prevalence of eating disorders increases. So, you know, our uh, uh, putting forth um, of a, a very, for most people, unachievable thin ideal. Um, and for a lot of people who it is achievable for, it's only achievable, it's only uh, the level of perfection you see is only achievable with copious photoshopping. Um, so putting that forth does trigger a lot more eating disorders amongst amongst people when when the, with the infiltration of, of Western culture. Um, so uh, with the exception of eating disorders and maybe one or two others that I, I can't that don't quite come to mind right now, but that's the most obvious one. Um, if you actually survey people in terms of how their mental health is going, um, you do identify about the same number of people with most mental health issues across different countries. Um, in subgroups, it's different, you know, subgroups within countries and any oppressed minority group tends to have a higher prevalence of, um, uh, of mental health issues due to the environment and society that they live in. Uh, so, um, so you will see that, uh, but generally like in a, in a very global scale, <laughs> uh, Western societies don't tend to have, um, more mental health issues, um, <clears throat> Uh, but they do have it within the, so that's within, from a research standpoint, um, from the clinical treatment standpoint, 
Western countries do have uh, better availability of treatment and probably better recognition of uh, mental health problems. For example, if someone comes into primary care to see their, their primary care physician, um, in societies with a more developed healthcare system, you might have behavioral health people there to identify and treat um, mental health issues. So they're going to be they're going to be more recognized and 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 more well treated. That being said, we don't do a great job <clears throat> of treating mental health and uh, mental health problems in this country. Uh, it's not there are not enough providers around, and there's not the greatest interface between behavioral health providers and and uh, medical health providers, which it really should be just kind of one holistic health. Um, that's getting better and improving. Uh, uh, a lot of that has been due to insurance companies uh, providing better compensation, um, but it's still not, even though it legally should be equal, it's not quite equal in terms of how much the uh, insurance companies provide financially to support uh, mental health treatment versus medical treatment. Um, so it's getting better, <laughs> but still not great and not where uh, any of us, either medical or mental health treatment providers, would want it to be. Because once most medical health um, care providers are exposed to behavioral health and understand what we do, uh, they're, they're quite on board with us as, as important members of the team. Uh, here in uh, at East Carolina University, we have a... Um, a primary care family medicine unit where our students are over there as the behavioral health consultants. So when someone has a problem, they get pulled in by their physician and you know our students do a quick assessment and, and figure out what their needs might be and then try to get them connected with the treatment resources that they need. So that's a really great model. It is a model that exists in many places across the country, um, but not enough. <laughs> uh, and that's something that is that's continually improving. This is why I love health psychology because health psychology is really at the forefront of that, um, of that change. So, all right, next question. Can someone develop autism spectrum disorder even though their parents do not exhibit symptoms slash traits? Can autism spectrum disorder be caused by adverse life events during childhood instead? Uh, yes and no. So um, the evidence is pretty clear that um, there is some genetic component to autism spectrum disorder. So, um, you know, most, the time when we talk about causes of a mental health issue, especially a developmental issue like this, um, we're talking about a diathesis stress model. Uh, so basically someone has to have some kind of predisposition to develop an issue, um, or it's probably not going to happen, but that predisposition needs to be coupled with the right circumstances, the right trigger or the right stressor, depending on the situation, for, for that uh, problem to develop. So autism spectrum disorder... Um, if we are going to call it a, a, a problem, you know, lots of people with autism spectrum disorder live, you know, happy, healthy lives and they wouldn't consider it a problem and neither would I. Um, but for a lot of folks with autism spectrum disorder, there's a, there's a level of intellectual disability as well and a level of, um, of, uh, difficulty functioning, uh, where they need, you know, constant care, where, whereas other people are more independent. Um, so keep that in mind. This is a spectrum of disorder, right? There's people who are very low functioning who have ASD and people who are very high functioning who have ASD. So keep that in mind. A lot of the people we see are the very high functioning folks, um, on, on TV and shows and stuff like that and, and portrayed in media. So, you know, they're, they're not necessarily the, the majority of folks with ASD. So keep that in mind. Um, but anyway, so, um, so they're generally, there's some kind of, um, 
uh, of genetic predisposition and probably some kind of early experiences, although not necessarily adverse life events during childhood only. Um, so these early experiences might be things like um, like prenatal environment um, and, and things like that. So um, I want I want to make this clear because there was uh, a thought early on that autism spectrum disorder developed due to poor parenting, and that's definitely not the case. I mean, that's been pretty well demonstrated scientifically uh, that, you know, it's not because parents are cold or mean or, or whatever. <laughs> that is not why autism spectrum disorder develops. It's something that would pretty much develop in any family if someone has the right genetics and the right um, early uh, biological early life experiences. Um, but certainly stressors can make autism spectrum disorder worse, uh, can exacerbate the symptoms and things like that, like mal you know, uh, neglect or anything like that could, could, would make someone who has autism spectrum disorder end up worse than they would if they had you know, proper care. So I don't want to negate that, but they would have had some degree of autism spectrum disorder probably anyway. Um, yeah, uh, but you may not, even if someone, if parents have the genetics, they may not show symptoms and traits of ASD and then a child could. So they still could have the genetics and the things that, that, are, that are independent of genetics in terms of early uh, experiences um, uh, are, you know, could influence someone to get autism spectrum, certainly. Uh, so even though there might be a genetic component to something, it doesn't mean that the parents show um, traits. They may be carriers or there may be other factors um, that activate uh, genetic components um, like, I don't know, uh, hormones in the womb and stuff like that. I mean, that's not something I know. I don't know if that's specifically been studied with autism spectrum disorder, but for other problems that can be, it can be things like that. And we're still really scratching the surface of what the prenatal environment uh, is like and how that can influence um, the development of, of uh, various mental health diagnoses later. So I didn't really do that justice because I don't know that literature very well and it's a pretty uh, newer literature. Um, but just know that someone doesn't, parents don't have to display traits for their parent, for their kids to have uh, autism spectrum disorder. Um, and it's definitely not caused by anything like poor parenting or um, childhood trauma or things like that. Although that certainly could exacerbate the symptoms of, of ASD. Next question. I remember hearing that autism has a high, high comorbidity with sexual development disorders like gender dysphoria uh, and physical intersex disorders due to hormonal complications in natal development. If this is true, could it be safe to say that autism is also a disorder of sexual development and it is realistic for psychologists and pediatricians to keep this in mind during the developmental stages of life? And does this change the perspective of autism as a disorder of psychological sexual development? Uh, I would say no. Uh, and the reason is that they're, these, these to me are two independent processes. So the processes that lead to uh, intersex disorders, for example, usually those are chromosomal um, and um, uh, newborns have properties of both uh, male and female uh, sexual organs and other organs um, and reproductive organs. So that's a separate process. Um, but I mean, if gender, I'm not sure if gender dysphoria is, is more common among um, folks with ASD, uh, but I think those are separate, <laughs> separate uh, um, states. I don't want to call them challenges or problems because certainly um, uh, gender dysphoria and, and 
well, being trans in general is not a problem, just a state, a way of being. Um, and so um, I think that those would be two separate things. So we wouldn't conflate the two and say that autism disorder is a disorder of psychosexual development, psychological sexual development, also because lots of people with ASD uh, do not exhibit gender dysphoria and are not trans and, and, and that sort of thing. So the fact that it's not happening all the time means that, you know, you can't, we wouldn't want to say that the two are are linked are are inexorably linked. Now there might be similar there might be an overlap in prenatal hormonal environment uh, and maybe an overlap in genetics. I don't think so. Um, but there but if those two things were if, if if those things were true, we still wouldn't call it. Uh, we, we we still wouldn't kind of merge the ideas and the disorders. They would just be two separate disorders that try to that kind of hang together. Let me give you an example. Uh, so when it comes to chromosomal issues, we know that trisomy 21, so three of the 21st chromosome, I hope I remembered that number right, um, leads to Down syndrome. But we also know that there are a lot of um, uh, genes that are somehow associated with Alzheimer's disease on the 21st chromosome. So when we see folks with um, Down syndrome, they have a higher risk to develop Alzheimer's disease. Now that doesn't mean that down syndrome is also like linked with Alzheimer's disease and we think of them as kind of we think of Alzheimer's as as, as an inexorable part of um, Down syndrome. <clears throat> and the reason we don't is that it's just kind of happenstance. The genes for uh, for um, uh, for Alzheimer's disease happen to be on the 21st chromosome and folks with Down syndrome have three of the 21st chromosomes so that's magnifying their risk. But we also see that not everyone with down syndrome develops um uh, uh alzheimer's disease and it's not it's not even it's not even so far as to say that like all of like a, a large large number i don't want to feel like i'm saying it has to be all but like if it was like 90 percent, then we would say all um so so keep those things in mind they're two separate processes they just happen to hang together uh, for some interesting reasons uh and so i don't i don't think that um this is necessarily uh um something that would, would change the perspective of autism disorder. Um, it is interesting, though, um, you know, if there is a higher prevalence of um, more fluid sexual orientation or uh, gender identity among folks with autism. I don't know if there is or not. I'm not aware of that research or, or knowledgeable of it. I would think that's interesting because people with autism are less... Um, susceptible to societal influences, like the opinions of people matter less to them um, as, as kind of part of that spectrum, right? Uh, and so um, maybe it's just a more uh, realistic um, expression of human sexuality and human gender identity if it's more common because it's not as strongly influenced uh, by uh, the derision or, or the um, bias from uh, the social environment. That is 100% a Matt Whited theory. Don't take that to the bank. <laughs> Further research would need to be done on that one. It's not going to be done by me. So right now it's just a theory that I thought of when I was watching um, Love on the Spectrum one day. All right. Uh, next question. Can a therapist prescribe medication for disorders such as depression or anxiety, or can only doctors prescribe those medications? There's three questions here. That's the first one. Let me address that. Uh, a lot of therapists are doctors. I'm a therapist and also a doctor. Uh, so, you know, part of the thing is that um, we typically use the word doctor to refer to uh, medical doctors, so MDs. Um, I'm a PhD. 
Uh, you also have PsyDs, which are psychologists who are trained largely in therapy um, and to be consumers of research and not create, not necessarily creators of research. So they're folks who are really committed to, uh, like they want their contribution to uh, the mental health environment to be treating people more so than doing what I do, teaching and training and, and researching. Um, I love people like that. Uh, so, <laughs> so, um, so they, but they, but they carry a doctoral degree. They are referred to as doctor. Um, then, then, but then you also have a lot of master's level therapists who are not doctors. They have a master's degree, so an MS or an MA after their name, um, and they don't give a special moniker, even though they should. It'll be, it would be weird to call people master. Uh, that would get confusing. Um, so, uh, so. Te on a technicality, no. <laughs> yeah, not only you know, like lots of doctors do and don't prescribe medications, but what we're talking about are physicians. So the word I use for medical doctors or MDs or physicians or MDs. So um, so let me go with that just to make that distinction better. So sometimes therapists with PhDs in some states who get extra training in psychopharmacology can prescribe psychoactive medications. I can't remember which states, and it's not super common. We thought it was gonna be a big, when it first started, we thought it was gonna be a big thing and it was gonna happen everywhere, um, but it didn't. <laughs> Otherwise, I, I would definitely get um, training in this and, and certification to do that, because I think that would be a wonderful ability to be able to help people get on and off of medication, because the other thing is I can't help someone wean off of their medication when they're starting to do better. That has to go through their physician, their prescribing physician. Uh, and that prescribing physician doesn't necessarily need any training in mental health treatment to do that. Your primary care provider who has very little training in mental health care um, could prescribe you, you know, Xanax or an SSRI or whatever they felt was, was necessary. And a lot of times they do it well. I mean, they, they look up the appropriate dosage and they titrate people once so they're doing it well. Um, but they're not necessarily, but the challenge is when the patient's starting to feel better and they're doing well in therapy, and they want to reduce their medication. And one of the best times to reduce their medication is when they're in therapy, um, because then you can, um, you know, you can help them through any of the emotional changes that occur due to the medication no longer being on board, and help them to bolster anything that they lose from getting off the medication with the skills that they've learned in therapy. So it's a great time to, to titrate down. Um, but a lot of physicians are afraid of that because in their mind, they've treated the problem. The problem is going away. Why would we stop treating the problem? <laughs> uh, and so, so like it, it takes a lot of convincing on my part with a physician to talk with them through like why the patient might want to reduce their medication. And then of course it's the patient's choice, right? So if I'm talking with the physician, the patient isn't in the room, right? And it's always on phone anyway, but the patient isn't there to represent themselves. And so the patient represents themselves to the physician. I represent the, the patient to the physician, but we're not all talking together unless we're in the same place on the same team, which in my practice isn't the case right now. Um, and so that can cause problems. Now, the example I gave earlier of our family medicine clinic, where you have behavioral health care providers on the same teams as, as mental health care providers, super easy, right? You just have a talk like, oh, so-and-so mentioned they want to reduce their, um, their SSRI a little bit. Um, do you think that that's something we could do? And like, oh yeah, how are they doing in therapy? Oh, they're doing great in therapy. Here's what they're doing. Here's what their symptoms are. Here's a, a PHQ-9, which measures depression. Here's a depression measure, and it's gone down significantly. And I think that 
you know, so you can have that conversation right there. It's a lot easier. You both are seeing the patient, you know, even sometimes at the same time. So it all works out. Um, so, so yeah, sometimes therapists can prescribe medications, typically not. It has to be a physician. Um, and that's good too, because like the other challenge of this, right, is like, if I'm going to prescribe someone a medication, sure, I can pick the right dosage and everything like that from a chart, um, and probably choose the right SSRI or whatever they need. Uh, but the problem is they're on a bunch of other medications and some of those are cleared through the liver. Some are getting cleared through the kidneys. And, um, if they're older, especially you have to adjust the amount of medication they get because their kidneys and liver don't clear stuff as quickly. So they actually need a lower dose. <laughs> so it gets very complicated very quickly. So, um, as much as I would want to be trained in this, I would use it very judiciously and I would probably consult with a prescribing physician. The experts at this are psychiatrists. So any physician can prescribe um, uh, medication for disorders such as depression or anxiety disorders. Um, but uh, psychiatrists are the experts at this. Like they know everything that's out there. They know how to balance other medications. They know how to, you know, do some, do um, more complicated treatment regimens for someone who doesn't respond to the first uh, um, medication. So they're the experts in it. But again, anyone who has an MD can prescribe psychoactive medications. Same person, next question. How do you know if someone is just in a rut for a while or if they are actually depressed? So I think I talked about this a little bit on the last podcast, but it's a wonderful question. Um, you know, technically, depression is a, a certain constellation of symptoms most of the day, nearly every day for two weeks or more. So you can kind of say, is it most of the day, nearly every day? And is it two weeks or more? But that's just for the diagnosis, right? And diagnoses when it comes to mental health are just a description. They don't tell you why the person's experiencing that. They don't tell you what's going, it doesn't, it doesn't say anything about what's going on in their life. It doesn't say anything about their biology. It doesn't say anything about that. Like it does if I get a diagnosis of a certain type of cancer is because I have a very certain type of cell that's going nuts in my body. And there's probably a very specific, hopefully, chemotherapy to kill that cell preference. I mean, it, it kills a lot, chemotherapy kills a lot of cells, but it'll kill that one preferentially and then help me to, you know, overcome that problem. That's not how it works with mental health stuff. You know, with mental health, you just get an accurate description. A diagnosis is just an accurate description. It doesn't tell you where it came from, what's keeping it around, um, how well that person's going to do with treatment. It doesn't tell you any of that. Um, so, you know, technically two weeks or more most of the day, nearly every day feeling depressed is, you know, they have depression. But the real question here is, are they in a rut and they're going to come out of it? Or is this something going to be something that sticks around for a while? Um, one thing that'll answer that question is time, but that's a cheap way to answer that question. <laughs> Just wait and see. Um, what it is, is if it's due to a significant stressor, is there a light at the end of the tunnel? If it's if they're feeling super depressed because they're having the worst semester ever and they have a ton of classes and they're super busy, um, then when that semester ends, hopefully it's hopefully it's just a rut until that semester ends or until they get a lot more work done, get out from underneath that, right? Um, so I think that's one way to tell. Uh, is there uh, were they were they fine before and then something happened and then when does that something go away? So that's a rut, right? That's just a temporary period. Um, sometimes there isn't a stressor. Sometimes it's just the, the weight of, of life in general or, or something. Um, but if people are looking at what's going on and trying to make changes to make themselves feel better, then I'd say it's a rut because then they're working their way out of it. If they're just stuck that way and there's not anything that they can 
feel like they can do and can't see a way out of it, then it might be something that could lead to the length of time and the intensity that is depression. So I always look for, um, is there a problem that can be solved and is there effort to solve the, that problem or those problems? Um, if that's the case, then I think it could be a rut. If you're in the, and this is in the middle of it, right? Um, in that case, I think it could be a rut. If it's something that is a major, like some kind of change or some kind of state and there doesn't seem to be a way out of it, um, then I would say it might, it, there's a higher risk for that becoming, turning into depression. Now, just because you don't see a way, when I say see a way out of it, I don't mean like a snap your fingers and everything's fixed. I mean, <laughs> you know, you, you are making changes, you can see a light at the end of the tunnel, you're saying, I'm going to do this and this and this, and these things might work and make me feel better. I'm going to get outside more. I stopped exercising. I'm going to start exercising again. Um, I'm really down because of a breakup. I'm going to, you know, keep hanging out with my friends, even though I don't feel like it. I'm going to go do other things that make me feel good. I'm going to do things that remind me of how awesome I am and the things that I like about myself. I'm going to go do those things. That kind of stuff um, is, will make whatever reason someone's feeling depressed more of a rut than uh, a, uh, something that lasts longer. Last question by this person. This person's full of great questions. I've been talking here for a while. <laughs> uh, what are some side effects uh, of antidepressant medications cause? Uh, the major side effects that bother people are things like weight gain uh, and sexual side effects. Um, and some people also report sexual side effects as in like uh, lack of lubrication for people with vaginas and a difficulty with erection and orgasm satisfaction with folks who have penises. Um, so that's generally what it is. Um, not always great on quoting the, the causes, the exact sexual side effects, but it's generally in those, in that realm. Um, and weight gain is the other one that bothers people. People often too report like a feeling of numbness, like it stops the sadness, but then they have trouble getting to the happiness and the highs too. Um, I don't know if that one's on the label, but that's what I hear people say a lot and they can feel a little bit zombie and numb. Um, but if that's better than when they were feeling, you know, depressed, then great. If it's not better then <laughs> then try a different medication. And also please try some therapy. If you're on medication, try some therapy, try some, or some kind of life changes, um, because you don't want to be on that medication forever. Um, yeah. So those are some of the main side effects that, that, that bother people. I mean, there are worse ones like if people overdose or, or you know, certain antidepressant medications, not the SSRIs, but certain older ones cause problems too, but I won't get into that. Also, I couldn't quote all this off the top of my head. That's a, that's a look it up question there. Uh, next question. Uh, if a person who has previously been diagnosed with depression and or anxiety has tried several different medications to treat these issues, and none of them thus far have made a noticeable difference, could that patient have been misdiagnosed? If so... What would be another possible diagnosis for someone who's suffering from symptoms of these disorders? Well, here's the thing. If you fit the description of an anxiety disorder, now remember, no one has anxiety, or everyone has anxiety. Anxiety is not a diagnosis by itself. Anxiety is not a mental health disorder. Um, if you're human, you have anxiety. Anxiety and experiencing anxiety and fear and stress is a normal part of being a human being. Um, now, anxiety disorders are going to be things like social anxiety disorder, um, panic disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, things like that. So they have specific labels for specific problems. Um, and same with depression. I mean, depression, we usually say depression. What we're really talking about is major depressive disorder, but 
that one doesn't have different flavors in the same way that anxiety disorders do. So we usually just say depression. Um, so, um, so I would say the patient's probably not misdiagnosed if that description is appropriate. But remember what I said earlier. So diagnoses within mental health are just accurate descriptions of what the person is experiencing. It doesn't tell you why. It doesn't tell you the cause. And medication is not the only treatment for mental health issues. So if you have a certain, if you're saying that someone has a certain problem and then one of the ways of treating it doesn't work, that doesn't mean that they don't have that problem. It means that it's the wrong treatment. Um, and so, so if they haven't made a noticeable difference at all, medications probably aren't the, uh, aren't the right approach, or maybe there's a different medication that could work better. I would highly recommend that anyone in this situation, and even someone who is getting medications, try some type of therapy. Um, now, again, I say that, I wish that I could say that and people could just go, like, go out and get therapy the next day and it would be easy. It's not easy. Everyone has a wait list, especially people who are worth seeing. <laughs> um, and not everyone is a good therapist. Um, you can get licensed uh, somewhat. Once you get licensed, you can you have less supervision and oversight. So people might start doing stuff that is not science-based um, and that is not um, in the way that they were trained. And they don't have a lot of accountability for that. So you might get some crappy therapists, um, just like you got this, like just like in this situation, the person may have gotten some some ineffective medications. Um, so I don't think diagnosis is the issue. I think treatment is the issue, and I think that someone in this situation should try to seek out um, therapy and try to do that from someone who uses science-based approaches like cognitive behavioral therapy, um, acceptance and commitment therapy to a degree, uh, behavior therapy. Um, and knows some of the treatments that I've talked about on this podcast. And if you're listening from my class <laughs> that I've talked about in class, um, because those are going to be the ones that are most likely to help the person. So it's probably not a problem with diagnosis. It's a problem with getting the right treatment. That's a great question. Next one. I think we're, yeah, we're a little over halfway. There, there aren't as many this time, which allows me to spend more time with each one. And I enjoy that. Do you think that mental health gets enough awareness in everyday life? I feel as if it only gets noticed once someone else famous or well-known commits suicide or is committed to a facility. Um, so that's kind of always been the case. <laughs> um, I feel like it depends on the it depends on the circle. I think in some in some circles, mental health gets too much attention because um, people are always are, are kind of like introspecting for whatever mental health disability that they have that keeps them from doing things and keeps them from thriving. Um, that's more rare and, and more of a recent thing. Um, but I think generally, yeah, mental health doesn't get enough attention and awareness. That's why I wish everyone would take my class <laughs> that goes through college. Uh, and that's why I teach this class every summer. So more and more people could take it because um, psychopathology teaches people about like, here's what these mental health issues are. And there are lots of treatments out there that work for them. Um, the availability of those treatments is subpar, but it's better than, but it's not bad. <laughs> uh, so, but it's not where we want it to be. Uh, so, you know, when someone famous does die by suicide, there is generally more, more hype and attention and stuff around that. Um, but really there should be attention to these sorts of things, especially when it comes to, to suicide. Um, and, and, and they said committed to a facility, so real severe mental health issues. So the, these, there, there should be much more knowledge of this. And, and, you know, there are not a ton of high school psychology classes that get into this. And a high school psychology class doesn't get, 
like is trying to cover all of psychology, which is huge. We're just covering psychopathology in this class, and that's what this question is referring to. We're really just talking about like mental health issues, right? Not not why are humans the way they are? <laughs> why do they behave the way they are? And animals as well. So that's all of psychology. Um, so uh, I I don't think that mental health gets enough awareness in everyday life. I would like to see better training about that. Um, at the barest level, we do have some decent training that about suicide, like that it exists and that there are, are, are you know, resources. Um, but yeah, I mean, even just knowing what depression is or what therapy looks like is something that is not very well known uh, in our society. People know from going to therapy, um, every therapist I ever watch on TV does something unethical because that, apparently that's the only way we're interesting is if we're doing something unethical and usually that's having sex with a client, which is like, you know, you lose your license for some period of time if you do that. Like that is uh, that is like a high level offense for any license, no matter what kind of mental health license it is. But that's what's portrayed in in TV, like constantly. And it's like, no one, not, I, which I'm a little offended. Like what the work I do is very interesting, at least to me. And I think would be very interesting to other people that, that the way that, you know, therapists are portrayed on TV is like, no, nah, they're only interesting if they're banging a client. Like that's it. That's the only one. That's the only way we actually care about what they're doing. Um, you know, I'm still waiting for my casting call where I just play myself as a therapist on some show and actually just do therapy. So people can actually see here's what therapy looks like. And then the main character can just like get better um, as opposed to, you know, the goofiness that you see. But anyway, I, I'm digressing a little bit. So to answer this person's question, I don't think there's enough mental health awareness. I think that is improving. I like to see people talking about it more. I see, especially this generation uh, of, of college students talk about mental health more um, sometimes to their detriment because they it becomes like, oh, I, I have anxiety, so I can't do this or that um but what i'm seeing more and more and more especially in in media and music too music is the place where you see this the most is you know i have these problems but i'm working on it that's what i want to hear i want to hear that so bad um i hear that a lot in and i was really into 21 pilots for a while because 21 pilots really like their lyrics uh really um get into that like i'm struggling but i'm working on it like when you look at the kind of the the arc of of their albums and stuff so um i really enjoy their music because of that message um it's a message that reaches people who are struggling but also says keep struggling keep working um you know and some of the some of the songs are more uplifting than others <laughs> in that sense but like the arc of an entire like album really gets at that. Um, and that's just one example of like the, the style of music that appealed to me. So I got really into it. Um, but there, are, I think are lots of examples like that in, in, in media and especially in music. Um, and so I like seeing that, that kind of stuff is super important because creating communities around people who are struggling with their mental health, but also working hard to push through it, uh, is super important. And I want to see, I want to see, more identity created for people around being people who work on their mental health as opposed to being people who have a mental health issue. Cause that's what, there's a lot of community around that, but I want to, I want that to expand. I want to see that expand. So that's, that's what I wish for the world. I don't know if I'll see that even in my lifetime, but I think awareness is getting better. And I do want to say, and I try to say this every time I get a chance, there is a national uh, crisis and suicide hotline. It's 988. 
Um, that's the new number for it. It's easy to call. They deal. They work with all kinds of stuff that is both related to people who want to die by suicide or want to harm themselves, but also folks who are really struggling and looking for resources, help, etc. Um, and they have a special line for veterans as well. Um, so 988 is is fantastic. If you live in Greenville, North Carolina, the Real Crisis Center is 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 serving a very similar purpose um, and more local. I don't know their number off the top of my head, but you can Google them. Real Crisis Center. R-E-A-L, Real Crisis Center. Um, so keep those things in mind. But yeah, there's always a spike in attention when someone famous has a problem. Um, and that could be a good thing. I'm not knocking it, but I would like to see a sustained level of attention over time as well. Next question. How do people often blame the victim for exhibiting signs of a mental illness? Yeah, I, I hear this a lot. Um, and that is, you know... It's really people who just don't want to feel like the world has problems in it or that people have problems or that, you know, that's just, it's distressing to them. So they just pretend it's not there um, or want to want to say it's the person's fault. Um, and often you see this as a sign of like, oh, there, some kind of, there's, there's an illusion to some kind of mental weakness. Um, like, oh, if they just try harder, they would be fine. They'd succeed. Or if they, if they just didn't think that way, it would be fine. But that's really dismissing everything that that person has been through and all their experiences uh, and that sort of thing. Um, and not knowing that, you can't just say, oh, that person should just like basically be a different person is what, <laughs> what you're saying when you blame the victim. Like that person shouldn't be them. They should be someone interest that pleases me to look at even more. Um, and that's garbage. So, I mean, a lot of us do that because it's very distressing to us to see people in distress. I mean, humans have a very strong drive toward empathy. Otherwise, we'd probably murder each other and we wouldn't exist as a species. So we have a pretty strong empathy drive. And so when we see someone suffering, um, you know, some responses are to help, but others are to just be like, that's their fault and their problem. So then that, that divests us of this empathy. Like, I don't have to feel bad for them. This is their fault. Um, so it's a self-serving thing to do, which is, is, is also unkind, especially if that is ever expressed. Um, so it's kind of unkind, but also it's a, it's a, it's a self-preserving response in my opinion. Um, and it's also an, uh, an, uh, a level of ignorance, like that the person who's blaming the victim doesn't really understand everything, that how mental health works. Again, lack of knowledge is, 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 uh, you know, ex not always that person's fault. Um, so the, I think that's the, the, how people do that and why they do that, um, but as people learn more and experience things in their own life more, um, maybe they haven't experienced the same kind of stress or tragedy that the person that they're blaming has. Um, once they've experienced that more, I think that they um, tend to develop more understanding uh, for, the, for people with mental health issues. Next question. In one video we were required to watch, it says that addiction was not a disease, but rather an addiction is something learned. Can you further explain how addiction is learned? So um, this was a controversial video and I put up controversial videos to make people think and that worked. This person has a question about it. So uh, great question. Um, so the disease model of addiction um, kind of says that uh, you have this, it's, it would be like having a bad knee, right? You have this, you can't do anything about it. The only thing you can do is give up control, accept that it is a problem, and um, basically don't walk on that knee. So that's kind of a disease model, right? Um, that's not the greatest example because you can get your knee fixed, but let's just pretend. Um, 
Uh, my analogies are not always top-notch in retrospect. Um, so that's like a disease model. Like it's very deterministic. Um, uh, a learning model says that addiction is something that people develop over time. Um, now that brings into this element of choice, right? Um, and um, that kind of says that people choose to become addicted. I disagree with that wholeheartedly. I think something can be learned and outside of someone's choice. And let, let me explain that. So imagine someone grows up in an area um, where there's very little opportunity. Um, there's not much that they can get involved in. There's not recreation. There's not parks. There's not places to play with other kids. There's not things to enjoy. So as they grow up, there's really not places to experience joy. They're in kind of high threat all the time. There maybe there's low SES, low money, um, and they're having trouble... Um, coping they don't know how to there's there's nothing that makes them feel good till someone gives them some sort of drug and they find out this actually feels good this is the one thing in my life that feels good so what drugs do often is they there's negative and positive reinforcement involved reinforcement means that the behavior increases so the drug taking behavior increases negative means something is taken away in order to cause that increase but what's taken away are the bad feelings and then what's given is all the good feelings. So there's negative and positive reinforcement occurring. That's kind of both sides of the same coin um, occurring in that situation. And that's very powerful. There's also a biological process occurring. So when it comes to uh, a substance, the biological processes uh, are uh, tolerance and withdrawal and things like that. And the high. So the high is there. That's physiological. Um, and then that high starts to go away. And usually you don't go back down to baseline. You go below baseline. <laughs> like the, there's withdrawal from the drug. You feel bad because the drug's not in your system anymore. Now, if you wait, it'll eventually get back up to hopefully back to kind of your baseline. But I mean, if you want to get it there quicker, take more drug, right? So there's a physiological process that's occurring that mirrors that, that psychological process. Um, and so that's how addiction can be learned. And But looking at that situation, if someone doesn't have other tools, then the drug is very appealing because that is the tool that helps them to feel better. Even if it's only temporary, it's the tool that helps them to feel better. And if they're really just looking forward to trying to get through to next week, not like next year, next decade, um, then that short-term answer is very appealing. Let me give you a different person. Let's say we've got a high-achieving high executive, right, who's working super-duper hard. Um, they've got, the more they work, the more money they make, the more they're going to move up within their firm. Um, you know, I don't know what, what occupation this person is. Make one up. But, you know, but it's, it's a high-stress, high-pressure environment. They start um, uh, taking, uh, they start getting meth in order to stay up later, work harder, focus more. Um, and then they switch to be fancier, they switch to cocaine. And so now they're, and, and it's the same thing, right? Like the environment is really pushing that person in the direction of the drug. So sure, there might be some choice there, but it's not a whole hell of a lot of choice. People that don't have other ways of coping with stress and coping with things who are exposed to drugs um, have a high potential, a higher potential to become uh, addicted. Right. And to, for it to become a problem. Um, that's how um, I would say that uh, addiction is learned. Now, there's a biological process here as well. Some people are more susceptible to that. So they, through a combination of genetics and early learning or whatever, they're more susceptible to um, to the, the, the power and the draw of that drug. 
Um, so I would say that that's kind of how um, addiction is learned. But keep in mind, like there's a predisposition for it. Not everyone, not every executive in that situation is going to find meth and cocaine as appealing uh, as, as others might. Um, so keep that in mind. There's a variability there that put people at higher risk. So it's not all just learning. Um, but that is how it, um, manifests itself as a, as an addiction and as a problem. Next question. What comes to mind when you think of mental health? Do you think positive or negative? Uh, I, I actually think as much as I am focused on what problem or disorder does this sound like, or does this person have, I'm actually think quite positive about it because I think that suffering is normal. I think that us going through nasty shit in our life is kind of normal. That's what everyone experiences <laughs> at some point, probably at many points, because that is what life throws at us. That's the, the, the way that, that we exist. Suffering is normal. Um, and so, but our ability to overcome suffering is also very powerful. So that's the positive side of it for me. You know, I think of things in like, um, you know, enhancing our mental health as well. So things like, I always go back to like exercise, like regular exercise, which I don't do, <laughs> uh, but aspire to do and recognize that's a very important part of mental health um, in terms of it cares for our physical body, gives us a bit of a buffer to stress. Um, and also like doing things in a variety of areas of our life that make us feel good. That's about prevention. Um, so, you know, I don't want to put all my eggs in one basket, so to speak. So all my feel good comes from one area. I need lots of different areas to feel good because not all of those areas are going to be going well at any given time, right? My main one is obviously work. That's what I spend most of my time doing. Um, but that's not always going to be going well all the time. So I need to have hobbies, friends, pets, uh, being out in nature, um, going on adventurous vacations, staying in touch with my family, all those things. Those are my values. Uh, or Well, those are more goals. That's a mix of goals and values. I won't get into the specifics, but all those things keep me going and keep me happy and that enhances my mental health so i do see it as not necessarily like do you have or have not mental health it's a, it's a matter of degree right and so i want to keep my degree high because not everything is going to be going well in every area of my life and i need buffers in other areas when something doesn't go well um so i think that's uh that's what comes to mind to me with mental health so i i think I'm, I'm looking for negative and I'm in some ways I'm trying to avoid negative both for me and for other people. Uh, but when there is negative, I am immediately thinking of the way out of that. So I never see the negative as a permanent situation, even though for some people it is, um, you know, but, I, but when I see someone who is struggling or I'm struggling myself or whatever, um, I look at that as, what's the way out? Because I've seen that so many times. I'm a therapist. I've seen the way out a lot of times. Um, and I know ways out uh, for a lot of different problems. Uh, so that's what I see when I think of mental health. So I, I, I see a mix of positive and negative. I, I, I think my, and psychology especially, is a very psychopathology field. Like we're looking for the problems so we can get rid of the problems. Um, but I look at it as more, um, I'm looking for the problems so I can find a way out of the problems toward betterness. Um, there's a whole area of psychology called positive psychology, um, that is more about like enhancement than detriment, than removal of detriment. So it's like, you're not trying to do less bad. You're trying to do more good. Um, they haven't really developed their own major interventions that really stick yet. 
Um, but the philosophy, I think, is worth thinking about. Like when I come in and I'm working with someone with depression, especially, I want to be like, let's enhance your life. We're going to enhance your life until it gets to the point where you're not depressed anymore, and then we're going to keep enhancing it. Or at least you will have the tools to keep enhancing it if we're not even even if we're not doing it together. Um, so that's where it, what I that's what I think of when I see it. So I'm looking for problems because I want them to be fixed, and because I have some power and control in helping people do that. That's a neat question. I I don't. I, I, it's not often that I talk about my own philosophy on mental health, um, and I don't think it's that different from a lot of people. But there certainly is a uh, from the outside. I forget that psychology looks like a field that looks for negative stuff and then tries to get rid of it or make it less bad. But it's like oh, so sad. The negative thing is there. I'm like, okay, suffering's normal. Bad stuff happened to you. Sure, it happened to every. <laughs> bad stuff happens to everyone. Um, this stuff that happened to you is particularly bad. Uh, let's work on making your life better and worth living and happy and satisfying, um, despite that. And I think crawling out of the hole and out of the mud um, can be very rewarding when we get there. Um, even more rewarding than living a life where nothing bad ever happens. Which, again, no one lives that life because suffering is part of the human condition. Next question. How can a person make subtle, positive daily changes in their lives to improve their mental health? Yay! Uh, so I've answered, I've said some of these things already. Um, regular exercise, and I don't mean, you know, I know that, you know, a lot of the listeners here are going to be students from my class who a lot of them are on the younger age spectrum. So I don't mean like hardcore CrossFit or anything like that. We're talking like go for walks a lot. <laughs> um, <laughs> look up the American Heart Association recommendations. Um, there's uh, there's ones through a lot of physical activity uh, societies. And, and it's basically like you go for a walk most days. Um, get your body moving. Get the juices flowing. Uh, if you like running, run. If you like biking, bike. If you like swimming, swim. Um, but the, walking I always go to because it's accessible for most people. Like we can go somewhere where we can go for a walk even if we can't do it like right outside of where we live we can go somewhere and go for a walk um so exercise big piece of it um a lot of y'all walk around campus a lot so you know sometimes it helps to push a little push a little more because you're already getting that walking in um but exercise uh is is a key one for folks like me who live a life that goes from one sedentary position in my home office to my work office uh and things like that it just really really making the time to um to 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 do that that piece of something for me uh it makes me feel better and honestly my work gets more efficient so it's not even taken away from work and productivity um the other thing as much as i just talked about work and the biggest thing is to have, again, many areas of your life where you have some degree of satisfaction. So don't put all your eggs in one basket of like, this is, this is the thing that when I achieve it and if I achieve it um, will be the thing that makes me feel like I am a good person, the best person, my best self. Like your best self is going to be a whole bunch of things, right? Um, so have other interests, have other hobbies, have friends, have a social life. Um, and friends that you value and value you, you know, look for friends that you want to be like family, um, uh, have hobbies, have interests, both intellectual and like physical, like making, making stuff, doing stuff. I mean, if you're into that, that's, that's something that I, my mind goes there. Cause I love that kind of stuff. Um, you know, make sure you have just a lot of things. Um, and that does mean that it might take away from some of them. You know, you can't, it, it takes away from my work to have to like, you know, exercise and stuff. 
but that's a good thing. Um, it takes away from my time with family to be married and have dogs. <laughs> um, because I don't, because I live in a different place, right? But but at the same time, I can still stay strongly in touch with my family, um, and spend as much time as I can with them, even though I live far away from them, uh, because of this is where the work was, right? So you know, making sure that I'm not putting all my happiness into one category, I think that is a key, and to constantly be just kind of looking or looking at our life, taking taking note and saying. Well, what can I what can I change around a little bit? Right now, this demands most of my attention, but what can I do with my precious extra time? Um, and finding out what that might be. We have some like I love social media, so don't take this as an old guy um, criticizing social middle aged guy <laughs> criticizing social media. But we have easy default behaviors like when we're bored or something like that, we just pull out our phone and scroll social media. I do that. I, I enjoy the break, um, but. If that's our only thing, then we're not, there's probably better things we could be doing with that time. Um, and I would say like my, for myself, my thing is an hour a day. If I spend more than an hour on social media, I'm wasting time. But you know, 10 minutes here and there is actually kind of fun, right? I'm, I'm, I'm learning stuff. I'm laughing. It takes me away from stressful things. Uh, I'm seeing how my family's doing. I'm liking stuff. Like that's a great way to spend an hour broken up throughout the day. But if it starts to be more than that, where I'm like, okay, I'm just sitting here scrolling. Like I have a whole list of things that I want to do. Why am I sitting here doing that? That's the time to kind of break out of those things. So, you know, making sure you, that you have that variety. I don't, th I don't think anything is off limits, um, in terms of healthy or unhealthy. It's a matter of degree and a matter of how well it works for you. Um, so just find, find those things that you're passionate about, that you enjoy and work them into your life and recognize that you don't have to be like, the best at it. It doesn't have to define you. It can just be a thing. Like I really enjoy woodworking. I put not a whole time. I put more time learning about woodworking into learning about woodworking than actually doing woodworking. Um, but I really like it. Uh, and I just like making stuff. I don't know why I like making stuff I can use. I like making a thing and then putting it to use and then being like, well, that, that worked for these reasons, not for these. Now I want to make it again. Um, so that I really enjoy, um, but I'm not the best at it. Like you won't see me as a a YouTube star, like putting out weekly videos on stuff I make. I don't have that kind of commitment for one, um, and it, I don't want that kind of commitment because then it's a job, and I don't want a job. I got one of those, um, and you know, I just I don't put the time in. Like I don't have the time to put it in to be as good as some of these people whose YouTube videos I watch, right? Um, but I can copy some of that stuff and I can learn things and then I can come up with my own stuff that, that people haven't thought of before that works just for my specific use case. And um, that's really pleasant for me. But I need to recognize that not everything I make is going to be amazing. Um, I made a little ramp for my cat and he won't even freaking use it. He won't even go near it. Terrifies him. And it's too small. And I made a hundred mistakes. But I learned I'm never going to make another cat ramp probably. But I learned a whole bunch of things about the processes that I used. That's the joy for me. So I need to focus on those things, enjoy those things. Um, and finding things like that are the things that are important for your mental health. And it doesn't have to define you. It doesn't have to be a big deal. It doesn't have to be your new social media thing. Like I barely ever tell my friends about stuff that I'm... Um, I'm making. It's not like I'm not a maker in my friend group. It's not like a thing. Um, I talk about it a little bit, but it's not like it's it, it's not about um, it being a huge part of my life that I define myself by. It's just something that gives me good feelings uh, and excitement and interest. Uh, 
And so that's what I do. Find those things for yourself. That's what you can do um, in, in terms of positive daily changes to improve your mental health. Um, if your mental health is if you're struggling, I would say try to get in touch with a therapist. Do all these things plus <laughs> try to get in touch with a therapist um, to help them. You know, they can help you kind of see some of the things that you could change that would be real helpful to you um, that you may not be able to perceive uh, from your own self. Also, talk to your friends about it. Do stuff together. If you're all trying to get more active, and go for walks together. If you all have a common interest, go do that interest together. Um, my one friend is super into motorcycles. He redoes motorcycles. Um, I went and so I went and did like the motorcycle driving tests, you know, class and test with him, and we had a good time. And I don't have a motorcycle because I don't feel like I'm good enough to survive the mean streets of Greenville on a motorcycle. Um, but, <laughs> but it gave me an appreciation and interest for his interests. So now we can share that and stuff. So again, just like playing around, enjoying life, figuring stuff out, but like keeping that curiosity and interest in things uh, going for you. Now to be more literal about this. So this positive daily changes, schedule stuff for yourself. You have a smartphone that can, you can put stuff in to schedule and it yells at you when you should do it. That is amazing. That is super helpful. That is a that is a thing that people should have and do. Um, so I would say, uh, please uh, use it. Uh, you'd be surprised how powerful the scheduling of small goals and small changes can be. Um, I schedule stuff in the morning uh, when I have all kinds of energy, and at the end of the day, I'm like, oh God, what? I told myself I'd go for a walk. Oh man! And the dogs are looking at me like you said the W word. We're all game for that. Um, and <laughs> but I can, you know, I can trust my past self who had more energy and drive and vigor. Um, and God damn it, I go for that walk and I feel good about it. Um, so use that. I think scheduling stuff, making really intelligent. There's something called SMART, S-M-A-R-T, goals. It's an acronym. Look it up if you're having trouble setting goals that you can keep. Um, check that out um, because that that's one of the big things to help you make the changes that you need to improve yourself. Scheduling small stuff, setting aside time, um, being a little more, being planful that in a to a level that works for you. All right, great question. I don't know if I, it was a short question. I don't know if I answered what the person was getting at, but I certainly said a lot. Okay, last question. I'm curious if bipolar and borderline disorders are often comorbid. I tried researching this and did not come across consistent data, uh, but have noticed that the symptoms of both are seen in individuals that are diagnosed with one or the other. I'm also curious on your thoughts. So the prevalence of Mental disorders in today's population versus the last generation or two. Many people claim that more people are mentally ill now, while some think that, that there are just many people who were undiagnosed previously. Yeah, I think uh, most of the empirical research would agree with that latter statement, that there are, that mental illness hasn't changed appreciably in, the, in like, especially in the U.S. population. There was a spike during COVID um, where people's, um, you know, all the surveys we had had people with higher mental health problems than we had seen before. But by and large, you know, you might have a change by a percentage or two, which can be a lot because there's not a high percentage of people with mental health issues. But, you know, in a global pop or in a U.S. population, at least, um, and probably globally, too, we haven't seen big changes in the prevalence of these things uh, existing in the population. Um, you know, diagnosis has gotten better, and so we do see, you know, increases in certain areas, mainly due to things like um, better diagnosis, like autism spectrum disorder especially. Better diagnosis and changes in diagnostic criteria 
I mean, more people get the diagnosis. Um, it's generally thought that that's why for that one specifically. Uh, Alzheimer's disease, we see increases, but that's because people are living longer. So they live long enough to show symptoms of Alzheimer's disease and then get the diagnosis. Um, so things, things like that. But um, by and large, it's kind of staying similar um, across uh, the wide population. Again, specific groups have much higher prevalences, prevalence rates of specific mental health issues than others. Um, but I can't, I can't quote all that off the top of my head, but you know, uh, so the other part of this question was bipolar and borderline. So bipolar disorder, um, is someone who's, who experiences manic episodes, which is a real high, high and elevated grandiosity, um, and a whole lot of energy. Um, and someone with borderline personality disorder uh, has a system of a, a kind of history of unstable relationships uh, where the person um, is, has a really high fear of abandonment and often engages in problem solving that is meant to stop that abandonment, abandonment but it's very um, exaggerated and ineffective generally in the long term. Uh, problem solving. So that's the short answer. You can look these up if you want the actual diagnostic criteria. That's the short description. Um, I, I don't think they're all that comorbid. Uh, they, if they are highly comorbid, if there was a time when they were highly comorbid, it was probably due to misdiagnosis. As you can imagine, people who experience manic episodes may have trouble with interpersonal relationships and also show a lot of um, very dramatic and expressive behavior, but that ex that's more exclusive to a manic episode, where someone with borderline personality disorder is probably not going to have um, as high of highs and as like um, uh, as kind of um, disjointed from reality in terms of their high emotional expression and things like that. Um, but you will see kind of high emotional expression and 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 high kind of um, some very um, dramatic and expressive emotionality sometimes but those are not manic episodes you know those are, those are incidents that occur a few, you know at, at times throughout a day you know, a manic episode is something that occurs across time for a period of time um, usually several days uh, so again like it may look the same in the moment but they're actually the cause of them is very different and the um the way that it, the timeline of it is very different so having high emotionality um, for a brief period of time and then going changing to a different emotionality later is more characteristic of borderline personality disorder. Um, that's very different from a manic episode that's within bipolar disorder where that that kind of that happens for several days and uh, at a time and it's not due to a fear of abandonment or anything like that um, or linked with a fear of abandonment or anything like that. It's a it's a biological issue that's causing someone to go into a manic episode. They're, they're just very different. So, you know, the overlap is like what someone may look like in a given moment, um, but they're actually pretty different in terms of how they look uh, kind of across time and, uh, and in that way. So you will see misdiagnosis a lot on things like this too, but uh, because of that reason, because someone will come in and, and, and be acting in a certain way and they'll get a diagnosis of one thing when really it's, it's, it's more the other if, they, if you get more information on how that person typically functions and what that looks like. Good questions. Uh, great questions overall. I really enjoyed answering these ones. Uh, this is the last one I'll do this summer. Um, super fun. Uh, great, uh, great class. I really enjoyed this class. Uh, and I hope that their questions um, really pique the curiosity of the listeners of this podcast. And I hope you all uh, enjoyed it. 
And I will see you next time, next time on my occasional podcast, as I call Do Healthy Be Healthy, um, when I come up with something to, to, to talk about, um, or some exercises. I've been adding some exercises as well. So if you look under the exercises tag um, on my website, on the dohealthybehealthy.com website, you'll find... Um, Right now we have mindfulness and we have progressive muscle relaxation and we're hoping to add some more mindfulness tracks and maybe some self-compassion and things like that Um, as I can get to it. Again, do things you love, uh, do things you care about, but they don't have to be your whole thing. Uh, Just like this podcast is something I love, but not my whole thing because I don't have the time to do it as well as some super amazing podcasters out there. But thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Take care and live well.